Um, I just want to draw attention to the stage. Um, it's making me feel really self-conscious because I'm quite a tall person anyway, and I can see the back of your heads. So um, thank you very much, Rich. It's, okay, it's all okay for the rest of the preaching team because they're really short, but um, there you go. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know if anyone's noticed, uh, but it's 11 days till Christmas. Um, I can see some excitement, some the disorganized people are fretting, the organized people are thinking, my calendar told me months ago it was Christmas. Um, but it is Christmas. I love Christmas. I'm a massive child when it comes to Christmas. Um, before getting married two years ago, uh, I had honed my Christ- Christmas day into an absolute art form. Uh, obviously, when I was younger, the standard things, you get up really early, 6 a.m., and then wake up with parents, open some sweet stockings on the bed, and jobs are good. And but up until eventually, at some <laughs> eventually at some point in time in our childhood, uh, my parents got too old, or we got too old, or someone got too old, and they enforced a 7 a.m. floor um, that meant we couldn't like, wake them up any, up any earlier than 7 a.m. But this was fine, because it just meant I got to get really efficient instead. So up until two years ago, my routine was I'd get up at 6.15 a.m., I'd have a little breakfast snack just to keep me going, a um, bit of more Wheaties or something, um, then I'd uh, get fully showered and dressed, like teeth cleaned, hair done, the whole works, be fully ready for the day. Um, at 6, I'd probably have to wait a bit because I'd probably done it too eagerly. Um, at 6.55am, I'd wake up, uh, no, I'd start making the tea because um, everyone would want tea and I didn't want to waste time like waking them up, getting their tea order, a waste of time. Uh, and obviously I knew their order, my brother would have milk and four sugars, my dad would have a milk and no sugar and my mum would have a green tea or something. Um, 6.59am, wake up my brother, kind of drag him out of bed, upstairs we go, perfect every time, morning start. Um, for those of you unaware of my identity, by the way, I'm Ryan, uh, I'm married to Rosie, uh, the lucky girl, and, um, <laughs> and uh, we, lead the, we lead the older youth group um, here at King's. Um, if you want any Christmas efficiency tips, by the way, then you know where to come. Um, I'm super excited this morning to be doing our first like, Christmassy preach this year, um, partly because, like I've said, I love Christmas, but mainly because the passage I've got this morning is really cool. Um, today we're going to be looking at Gabriel coming to Mary and saying she's going to have a little baby Jesus inside her, um, which I know for many of you is instantly switch off time. Like, you've heard this passage before, you've heard this sermon before, um, I know this, Ryan, it's fine. But fret not, because um, this morning is called Christmas the Prequel. Maybe. There it is, look at that. Um, Christmas the Prequel. And uh, we're going to be looking at Jewish history, we're going to be looking at um, God's kingdom and our salvation, um, and all of those fun things, and also... Um, If that doesn't tickle your fancy, then maybe you're here today wondering, is there more to this world than the materialistic stuff that we see around us at Christmas time? Maybe you're simply um, a bit daunted by your Old Testament. There's all these names and dates. You're happy with the New Testament, but I'll leave the Old Testament to the side. Where does Jesus fit into it, really, anyway? Um, Maybe you want to know why Jesus is such a big deal now or back then. Um, Maybe you're just interested in why there's so much fighting around Israel at the, t- at the moment all the time. It's all of these things are going to be coming out of the, out of the message today. Um, let's start by looking at the passage. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, if you have a Bible. Um, it will appear on the screen if you don't. And if you would like a Bible, then if you wave your hand in the air, then someone will deliver it straight to your chair. Um, good service. Uh, as I said, we're going to meet Mary, the mother of Jesus, when Gabriel comes to her and tells us some rather interesting news. So from verse 26, we read, In the sixth month, of Eli- sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a 
town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So as I said, here we meet Mary for the first time in the book of Luke. I'm sure for many of you this passage fits nicely into um, nativity plays and Christmas traditions and other torturous yearly events. But let us cut through the images of children in donkey onesies and see what this passage has to offer us 2,000 years on. Uh, My first point this morning is Jesus, the tale of the Jews. Um, When you or I read this passage, um, or take Joe Bloggs for instance, when he reads this passage, a few names and titles crop up that are completely meaningless nowadays. Who is David? How many descendants does Jacob have that need ruling over? However, if you were a first century Jew, uh, this passage would be bursting with meaning. Luckily, I happen to have a first century Jew with me. Um, so meet Henry. Henry. Um, I don't know why they coloured in nothing but his tie and eyes. But, um, there's Henry. Hi, Henry. Um, Henry doesn't really participate very much with us. Um, it's kind of a one-directional thing with Um, Henry, so he won't be able to tell us how he's feeling, but we had a chat beforehand and he's told me all the major points he gets excited about. Um, So, but on top of this, we're going to have to put our first century Jewish thinking caps on as well to try and really see what this passage would have been like for a first century Jew. With these lovely caps on, that I hope you've now donned, um, and with the help of Henry, we're going to pick up on three of the major um, themes in our passage. Henry's going to get really excited about the virgin birth, the David's throne and the ja- uh, Jacob's descendants. So let's start from the top. Uh, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin. We read virgin in this context and think of a saintly Mary um, in a barn outside a um, inn with a halo around her head and some sheep around her and a golden shining manger before her. But with those snazzy thinking caps on and with Henry getting excited behind us, we know there is more here than meets the eye. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. As Henry reads the word virgin in Luke chapter 1 verse 27, his mind flicks to this verse. 700 years before Mary was given the news about little Jesus, there was a king who was in quite a lot of trouble. He was in the bloodline of Jesus. He was like the great, 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 great something of um, Jesus and was the leader of God's people at the time, but was under threat of attack from two of his neighbors. God, through the prophet Isaiah, um, tells the king to ask for a sign to prove that God would support them. The king kind of piously turns down on the offer since he'd already um, paid a much larger nation to kind of wipe out the other smaller nations. But God still gives him a sign, the sign being a miracle child 
born to a virgin who would be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel in the original Hebrew, which the passage was written in, um, means God with us. And this child would be a promise um, of God's continued support and backing for the nation of Israel through any of the trials and troubles that they were about to face. A number of years later, like not that many years later, tens of years later, um, a child was born and the rest of the prophecy was kind of fulfilled. It was, it was basically fulfilled. So maybe you're sitting here wondering how this could possibly apply to Jesus. This was a prophecy that was very specific to that time and situation um, and it was kind of fulfilled. So the box was kind of um, ticked. A child was born and the rest of the prophecy was done kind of thing. How could it possibly apply to Jesus all that 700 years later? Now is probably a good time to introduce uh, a concept called double fulfillment. Um, don't glaze over here, please. Um, double fulfillment is, uh, a biblical prof- uh, is where a biblical prophecy might have a kind of initial fulfillment near the time, like in this case, and then a greater fulfillment um, later on. For example, here the prophecy was so specific and like, relatively clearly fulfilled, yet Matthew in his gospel applies it directly to Jesus. What Matthew was doing was saying, he was pointing at that prophecy and saying, this is, Jesus is the real miracle child. He's the one that the prophecy was really talking about. He's the full fulfillment of um, God's sign that God is with us. Henry then, on reading this uh, passage in Luke, maybe having similar thoughts. Ooh, a virgin birth. God really is still with us. Jesus being Emmanuel to Henry would mean that God was kind of supporting or backing um, the nation of Israel, kind of like their number one fan kind of thing. So the feelings you should have with those thinking caps on are of a God who is supporting and backing the nation of Israel. Let's continue with the passage from verse 27. Uh, Luke, that is. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Henry is jumping up and down right now. I have to let you know. Um, There are two major things that we need to pick up on here that Henry's so excited about. First is the descendant of David, and the second is the throne of his father David. So who is this ever-important David that's got Henry in in such a twist? David was the first, no, he was the second king of of the nation of Israel, and he was the first one that God himself chose and put in place. Um, And although he was the second king, um, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, God gives David one heck of a promise. Uh, it should appear on the screen, I hope. There we go. Uh, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I, this is God speaking through Nathan the prophet, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, hence our interest in descendants, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Double fulfillment is going to be important again here. To remind you quickly, the double fulfillment was this idea that prophecies could have an initial fulfillment nearish to the time and then a fuller fulfillment at a later date. 
in this passage, God promises David that one of his offspring will take over um, his throne uh, after him. That this offspring will build a temple to God and that he will continue David's um, throne forever. He promises that his house, which is kind of a term for his bloodline, will keep going forever as well. These are some really big promises. And many of these points are fulfilled in David's son Solomon. Solomon does become king of Israel. He even builds a temple for God, kind of God's house. Solomon also became incredibly rich and powerful in the world. He had 40,000 horses. He had 22 and a half tons of gold a year. And all of his cups made of gold and stuff. So he was a really opulent kind of guy. Um, But some of these points just couldn't be filled in Solomon, could they? Your kingdom will endure forever. A mortal man can't fulfill that kind of promise. When Henry reads these references to David, he is seeing these promises. He expects a Messiah who will be a king whose kingdom never ends. Henry wants a Messiah uh, that will lead the Jewish nation to worldly prominence, to power and richness again, like in the days of Solomon. This is what the the feelings you should be getting with your thinking caps are of this everlasting kingdom that will just keep on going with this amazing earthly um, prominence and power and richness. Let's continue with our passage again in Luke. Uh, Verse 33 reads, And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. This is our third and final point that uh, Henry gets super excited at. Why is he so excited at the descendants of Jacob? Genesis chapter 35, verses 9 to 12, will appear on the screen, so don't click them. Um, Hopefully you aren't getting too confused now, but we're traveling even further back in time. Um, The first king was a few 700 years ago. David was like even more further ago. Um, And this is even even further ago to, uh, before that um, to the time when Israel wasn't even a nation yet, it was only just becoming a nation and there was no kings in sight from verse 9 uh, reads after Jacob returned to Padan Aram, God appeared uh, to him again and blessed him God said to him, your name is Jacob but you will no longer be called Jacob your name will be Israel, so he named him Israel and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and increase in number, a nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. This passage is um, the account of God naming uh, the nation that would be kind of his people. This is part of the reason Henry is so excited. He is a descendant of Jacob. But what is the nation of Israel? I've mentioned it a few times this morning, but what is it? It may help to think of Israel being very much like the church, The original intention was and still is that it was all about the people, not the place. Just like a church, uh, it's not about the building, but about the Christian brothers and sisters that form it. Israel is not a landmass, but the descendants of Jacob. As a church, we obviously have an associated building. We're in it at the moment. Um, And likewise, Israel had an associated land, but it wasn't supposed to be all about the land. It does mean, however, that two things are super important to Henry. The first was his bloodline. Am I a descendant of Jacob? The second was that the Jews, Jews ruled over the promised land. The land was so important back then and still now that people are still fighting over it today. When reading Luke's account, the feelings we should be getting with these thinking caps on are of national identity and heritage. Henry expects the Messiah will simultaneously reunite the nation of Israel and importantly take back their land. You can take your thinking caps off now and we'll say goodbye to Henry for the time being. Um, Hopefully I've given you an insight into how a Jew like Henry might have read um, this passage. 
The tale is very much of a God who supports and backs his, uh, his people, the nation of Israel, of a nation waiting for a king to reestablish David's throne and reign forever, and of a people yearning to be re- reunited in their, their, their rightful land. This is the tale of the Jews in our, in our Christmas prequel, um, a nation that was born and peaked and has fallen, that just awaits the Messiah, the descendant of David, to defeat their enemies and reign forever. My second point this morning uh, is titled Jesus, the Tale of Grace. As there often is, there is another side to this story, a different yet similar tale that weaves in and out of our previous story. With our Jewish thinking caps on and with the help of Henry, we couldn't help but notice these awesome messianic promises. We couldn't help but dream of liberation from the Romans and prosperity in the promised lands. But let us pick up on what um, Gabriel says to Mary in verse 30. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. What is this word favor then? Uh, Is it you've been very well behaved, so you're my favorite, like parents have with children? Um, Or is it um, uh, something more like a sign of love and grace, like um, doing someone a favor rather than favoring someone? It's that one. That's the way that God works. Um, It's very much love and grace, doing someone a favor rather than just liking someone more because they've behaved well. Um, so what if the path to Jesus isn't just a nation's struggle for prominence? Um, what if it's actually something bigger than that? So far we've seen a nation wanting God's backing and support, wanting a super king, wanting their land back. Now we'll track God's favor um, through and grace through Noah and Moses and finally Mary and see what else might be going on behind the scenes of our previous tale to see where we fit into it. Starting even further back in the Bible, um, we find Noah. I feel pretty confident that most of you have heard of Noah. At the very least, you can kind of hum the animals went from two by two, hurrah, hurrah. Um, I was very tempted to get around going, but maybe not. Um, let's flip back to Genesis anyway and see, who, see a bit about who Noah is. So in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 13, um, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. The Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. It's quite a heavy passage um, doesn't make for light reading but at some point in time after Adam and Eve had been kicked out of the Garden of Eden um, humans had diverged and corrupted from this ideal that God had for us from the, from the hope and intention that God had for everyone and God saw that everyone's heart was only full of evil all the time God being holy and righteous knowing that this evil would only um, cause more and more suffering rightly judges that it would actually be best to wipe out the human race. Thankfully, 
God is also gracious and loving. And despite his regret for creating us, um, Noah found favor in his eyes. Uh, the passage tells us that Noah was uh, blameless among men, which may or may not have been particularly impressive back then. Um, but he also walked with God. It kind of seems like God was looking for a restart. He needed someone to start again with. And the obvious choice for him was someone that walked with him. Although not perfect, Noah was a better human than most on the account of him walking with God. So it appears that God was just trying to clean humanity up a bit, restarting with the cleanest human he could find. This act of cleaning I will call sanctifying, not just because the Bible, uh, not just because it sounds more holy, but because the Bible uses that word quite a lot. Um, it has a few more connotations than cleaning, um, specifically with worship and stuff. But um, for now, think of cleaning when I say sanctifying. In this account, God graciously sanctifies, cleans the human race through giving favor to someone. It wasn't like Noah had deserved or earned the privilege, but God wanted to uh, sanctify, and in his grace, he chose Noah. So God uses favor to bring in his sanctification. Um, so now we're going to meet, we're going to skip forward a bit um, and meet a, with a guy called Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Another classic biblical account here. Um, we've kind of skipped forward quite a number of years, like a few hundred years um, from Noah, and we find Moses. Moses was a, a Hebrew or a Jew or an Israelite. Um, who was raised in the courts of a, an Egyptian pharaoh. However, 40 years prior to the event we've just read about, um, Moses had actually killed an Egyptian slave dri driver who had been beating a Jew. And he then fled to a foreign land where he got married and had a son and all this kind of stuff. Um, so he, re he wasn't really a particularly super holy guy. Um, like I said, he'd murdered someone, he'd taken a non-Hebrew wife, which was against God's law, and he didn't even circumcise his son, which was also against God's law. But Moses still found favor from God. And God uses him to save all of the Israelites from slavery and take them back to their promised land. The word I'm going to use here is salvation. Think saving. So in the Moses account, God's salvation uh, is him saving his people, the Israelites, from their oppression in Egypt. Where through Noah, God worked out his sanctification. Through favoring Moses, God works out his salvation. We met Jacob earlier this morning, the guy that... Um, God renamed Israel and spawned an entire nation out of. Um, you might assume that um, Jacob was a super holy man as well. Um, someone that God must have looked upon and gone, I really want the human race to look like Jacob. Um, but this just wasn't the case. Jacob had a brother called Esau. And the Bible tells us um, that God chooses Jacob before either of them were born. Before either had done anything right or wrong, God chose them. But this is just how God chooses to work. He bestows favor uh, on undeserving people and works his grace through them. Which is what finally brings us back to Mary. 
if we know now that God favoring someone generally means uh, he's about to pour out some major grace, um, then just as Henry can get excited about uh, a Roman-killing, nation-leading Jewish mega-king, we can get excited about what God is about to do through Mary. God doesn't disappoint. Who does Mary give birth to? Oh, that's amazing. Um, I wonder how Jesus fulfills on your expectation of sanctification and salvation. Coincidentally, as it so happens, um, for a very long time, we have lived in a world of great evil and sin and wrongdoing and depravity, but also a world full of affliction and suffering. A world where Egypt may not be ruling over us, but our own sin is. We're not slaves to an oppressive Egyptian, but we are slaves to our own sin, our desire to do wrong before God. We are not dwelling in God's kingdom in a good place. We're dwelling in someone else's kingdom. So simultaneously, we are like the people in Noah's time who just can't do right before God, um, who are slaves to our sin. And we are like the Hebrews in Moses' time, suffering and afflicted. It doesn't take much to look at the world and see all of these um, things. Um, For Noah, God's love and grace kept the human race going while trying to clean us up. For Moses, his, his salvation took... Um, his people from their suffering and affliction and slavery to a new better promised land with Jesus God does both Jesus' death was actually a voluntary sacrifice he had lived a perfect life and uh, not done any evil or anything like that and since death is a result of sin as Paul tells us in in the book of Romans Jesus didn't deserve to die his sacrifice was him uh, taking on all of our sins putting them on um, to himself literally taking the punishment for them and putting, taking them off us and putting them on him. So literally cleaning us, scouring us of all of our um, sins. God's Noah grace in action on a much bigger scale. Uh, Jesus' resurrection then also um, sealed our salvation. It signaled that our death would not be permanent and that if our sins are cleaned from us, um, from Jesus sanctifying us in his death, um, then we will be taken to a new promised land. For us, the promised land will be a new earth what, with no more suffering and, uh, or affliction or slavery to our sin. God's Moses grace is not just moving us from um, a slightly better place uh, to a, no, from a bad place to a slightly better place, but transforming our current place into something infinitely better. In Jesus, we have sanctification, our sins are clean from us, and we have salvation. We are saved from this world and promised a much better one. My third and final point then this morning is expectation versus reality. So far this morning, I've walked us through how a first century Jew, who I affectionately named Henry, might have read our passage and what um, the path from Jacob to Jesus kind of looked like. We've also seen how excited Henry was getting all these expectations of national identity and national heritage. Um, The Messiah was going to be the saviour of Israel. We've also looked at a slightly different path to Jesus, one marked with and God's grace and favoring of people that would then turn into sanctification and salvation. It kind of seems like these two stories don't actually marry up very well. When we looked at Henry's expectations, we saw little bits and pieces of, um, of uh, Jesus, like miraculous births, and um, God's son was mentioned in one of the passages and stuff. But Henry was expecting an everlasting kingdom, Israel's return to the glory days and richness and prominence. It doesn't seem like they match up time to tie our two tails together Um, and a bit of a spoiler is wherever Henry was getting excited before we too can now get excited if you cast your minds back to what I said about the virgin birth um, 
remember the original prophecy around the virgin birth was a sign of God's continued support and backing of um, that God is with us. What a shock then, that instead of God with us being a banner of God's support, God literally came to earth and dwelled uh, with us as Jesus. And then even more so, when Jesus left, the Holy Spirit came um, to dwell inside us. In my opinion, that blows uh, support out of the water. God is now actually physically and spiritually with us at all times. That is so much more amazing than just a supportive, backing, number one fan kind of God. It means we have so much more than a supportive ruler. Instead, we have a personal father um, who is intimately joined to us now. I feel like we can confidently tick the Emmanuel box because Jesus may not match up exactly to Henry's expectation, but he actually extends the expectation to something much greater. We have a real relationship with a father that loves us and a savior that died for us. We have a constant presence that bolsters our faith when times are tough and reminds us of what Jesus has done. No longer um, is uh, God hidden behind a, a curtain in a temple somewhere that we can't go anywhere near. It means on a Sunday we can come expectant that God will be present and active. God is actually with us. Secondly on our list was everlasting kingdom, um, which the expectation was an earthly kingdom. The re- reality is a heavenly kingdom. Off the back of various promises, including the one that I talked about to David, the Jews were expecting a Messiah to set up an everlasting kingdom on earth, ruled by a Jew for for the Jews. Did Jesus fulfill this expectation? No. However, look for a pattern here. Jesus brought something so much better. Now God's kingdom, God's kingdom is growing on the earth, a kingdom that brings joy and peace and healing. And the future is not even simply earthly. Instead, we are going to get a new earth, which will be intrinsically joined to heaven. As humans, we love to moan about kingdoms. We call them governments now. Um, So I'm not really sure I could get that excited about just another earthly kingdom. Um, But God's kingdom is a different matter. We have a king so full of love um, that uh, he died for us. And we have a father that just lavishes us with grace and gifts and good things. This kingdom is one of joy and peace and healing and relationship and love. Just as God's presence is infinitely better than God's support, God as king is infinitely better than just another human as king. It wasn't what Henry was expecting. We have to accept that. But I feel like we can certainly tick the everlasting kingdom box because God's is a kingdom that will surely uh, never end. Finally, third on the list was Israel. The expectation was a return to the land and the reality was the people. I mentioned earlier that the nation of Israel was supposed to be more about the people, not God's people, than the land. Sadly, over the years, Israel had kind of lost sight of this. The Jews had lost sight of this, and it had become all about the land. We've got to get back to our promised land. Like I said earlier, it's why there's still so much fighting today. It's their national heritage. So it meant that you know we can see this land obsession because um, they were expecting a Messiah that would return them to their promised land. That was their main hope for the Messiah. Did Jesus do this? No, but God wasn't interested in the land, but people. So what Jesus did do was to expand the borders of the nation um, to cover the whole world. It's not any longer just the genetic Jews and a little bit of land anymore. We're all included into God's people. It's cut metaphorically, it's like we're all descendants of Jacob now. Jesus didn't come to regain the promised land, but to make the whole world the promised land. This is truly amazing for two reasons. Firstly, It means we're now joined to all our Christian brothers and sisters in the world. 
when you become a Christian, you aren't uh, inducted into a worldwide religion. You're um, adopted into God's family. Secondly, it's not that the Garden of Eden is going to spring up again and we all need to cram inside it and get all snuggly and stuff. Instead, God is going to remake, recreate the whole world and put us back on it after we've died. So much better and so much bigger than just the promised land. If we roll these three broken expectations into a sentence, we get that we are now God's people, enjoying fellowship with God and each other while we see in the new kingdom. Now you and I can get just as excited as Henry was getting. When, he read, when we read through this passage and land on virgin, we know that God is active and present in us and in the church. When we read David's throne, we know that um, God's kingdom is rolling in, bringing joy and peace and healing. When we read Jacob's descendants, we know we are a part of a worldwide family that Uh, with a new earth being promised to us in the future. Personally, I think the only response to this is worship. Through Jesus, we are God's people, enjoying fellowship with God and each other while we see in the new kingdom. Let it be a lesson to all of us. God will blow away our expectations. Henry expected that only the Jews would continue to be God's people. God would be behind them, supporting them, and their new king in their old land. But again, now we are all Um, God's people enjoying active fellowship with God and each other while we see in the new kingdom absolutely awesome Katie's going to help us um, worship as a response to this because just to remind you again we are now all God's people enjoying active fellowship with God um, through the Holy Spirit through Jesus through what he's done um, what we see in his new kingdom 